Frank Rossi from the TurfNet Radio Network. This is Frankly Speaking, smart talk from thought leaders. My guest on this episode for a return engagement to Frankly Speaking is Professor Bill Kreiser, assistant professor at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Bill's what we'd call a lifelong member of the turfgrass industry, installing a putting green in his yard in West Dallas, Wisconsin during high school, attending the University of Wisconsin-Madison, studying turf, working at the, many of the fine golf courses in Wisconsin, Westmore and Whistling Straits among them. He studied under the late Wayne Cousseau and then Doug Soldat, where he developed the original plant growth regulator growing degree models for Primo on creeping bentgrass, a project that's now expanded to all the PGRs on most warm and cool season grasses in a variety of climates. And of course, you can bet we intend on discussing this. Bill joined me here at Cornell for his Ph.D., where I learned as much as I could from him, and then off to Nebraska he went in 2014, where his program has already broken some excellent ground with the iron layering issue, winter desiccation that welcomed him to Nebraska, and the use of thermal imaging. And, of course, uh, he's the founder and developer of the Greenkeeper app, as well as being an amateur pilot, and we might even venture into that area, but we have more technical topics to talk about. We're expecting a wide-ranging conversation about how grass grows, a topic not usually considered very interesting. But for golf course superintendents who want firm, fast, and sustainable surfaces, it begins with managing growth. So, Bill, welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back on. Uh, Before we get started, let me ask you about flying for a second. Uh, How much have you been flying, and are you still enjoying doing it? I still enjoy doing it. I wish I was doing it more frequently, but I've been flying on uh, big commercial airliners more recently than I've been flying around uh, the Great Plains, unfortunately. So with the summer coming, I'm hoping to get back in the cockpit and uh, fly around a lot more. And the reason I'm asking this question, and of course this will date this podcast a little bit, but it's just in the the days after the latest uh, uh, ex- uh, engine exploding in, in on Southwest Airlines and listening to the, the calm, cool, and collected uh, fighter pilot, former fighter pilot, land in that plane. Uh, I watched you go through training. It is quite a disciplined activity flying planes, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You really have to uh, commit to it. You really have to focus. Um, you know, you have to be able to do a lot of training so that when you have situations come up, that's not a scary thing. You just go ahead and rely on that training and you work your checklist and you figure out how to solve the problem. That's exactly right. And in many ways, not unlike growing grass uh, to some extent, where really the thing we want to focus on today and what we think uh, golf course superintendents, turf grass managers who have the ability to use plant growth regulators on a regular basis, uh, just talking about how grass grows. So, Bill, listen, you, you have been at this uh, in, in your undergraduate years, uh, through your graduate work with Wayne, and now back again, uh, studying growth. I mean, how would you summarize uh, what we've learned in the last five to seven years? Before, bef- I mean, I, I remember when you were here with me, we were always shocked at how little we sort of really understood about how the grasses grew and how we sort of accepted the bimodal growth pattern, if you will, of, uh, of cool season grasses. So if you had to summarize sort of where we're at, you know, what we've come through in the last five to seven years, that'd be a good place to start. Yeah, sure. So uh, typically we talk about growth rate and we, th- we think about it in terms of those curves we see in a lot of textbooks, those bimodal growth curves and it's something that I've always been kind of interested in because, you know, where does that data come from? Where do those curves come from? And if you look back, it's usually unimproved forage type grasses that weren't irrigated in 
the 40s and the 30s. Then, you know, some of the things we started doing here in Nebraska was just looking at measuring clipping yield a lot and understanding when is a growing grass growing fast, when is it growing slow. And we started to see that there wasn't always a connection between what we'd see and expect from a textbook to what we were measuring in the field. And so we started to kind of evolve these, this thinking into understanding, you know, why are we worried about growth? Why is it important? Well, growth is important for nutrient uptake and carbon partitioning and uh, traffic and tolerance, recovery. It's going to be correlated with quality. Right. So it's such an essential thing, but we just don't really think about it well, very and, much. And, and let me say, let me say further, I, I, would, I would think some of that comes from, and I'm certainly guilty of it, we we really discouraged people from paying attention to yield. We, we I mean, you know, there was always this cursory or sort of a, everybody would uh, just casually look at the clippings in a bucket and say, oh, I'm getting a lot today. I'm getting a little today. Or did you get a lot of grass today? Did you get a lot of – I mean, I remember being on a golf course for years asking if they got a lot of grass. And yet I think in many ways we never gave that data a very – we gave it short shrift. We didn't really pay much attention to it. Yeah, and that's something that we're dealing with, I think, with a lot of different data. I mean, just going out and we collect data all the time with our soil moisture meters. We use our eyes to see how green the grass is, another good indication of nitrogen status and availability in the soil. And we look at it and say, yeah, it looks good today. And then we don't write it down or we don't keep track of it. And so then we, if we don't, we're not doing that, then we can't make any decisions on how we're managing. So I think the first thing, if, if it's clipping volume or just the color of the grass and how it's performing or your green speed or whatever, just logging that data, keeping track of it, and then looking at how are you managing your grass to figure out, you know, is there a way you can kind of refine things? Because ultimately, as managers, we want consistency. We want consistency in the green speed, in the color of the grass, and the growth rate of the grass, uh, and the health of that grass. And so to be consistent, we have to start collecting that data and thinking about how we're managing to, to, to maintain that consistency. And, and I think um, if we continue with the history, I, I would say I started shooting my mouth off about a decade ago. Why the hell are we following uh, the one-third rule? You know, I, I didn't like, like you did, the sort of way it was evaluated. There was certainly data that conflicted it that maybe you could cut grass less than that and it would survive uh, no problem. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I usually talk about it and then really good scientists like you actually go and study it. And yeah. I would say that was a big turning point for all of us when you began to simply uh, a challenge, the one-third rule, and I think uh, all of us now have a better understanding. You want to talk about your exploration of that work? Yeah, right? I mean, it's just, we've been doing this for four years now, and it's, just not, it's, it's taller mowed grass, tall fescue, and now we've even added buffalo grass, our warm season grass here in Nebraska, um, to understand how does mowing height and mowing frequency impact the, uh, the clipping yield, the total amount of, of uh, leaves I'm actually mowing off. And what we found is when we were scalping, we were actually stimulating a, a big increase in clipping yield because that grass is um, just trying to maximize leaf area after a scalping event. So we were growing more and therefore we needed more nutrients to drive that growth and sugars that were being allocated towards uh, storage in the crowns and rooting now are going to support this excess of growth to recover from the scalp. Uh, and so we were just learning a lot of things about um, just growth rate. We're also too looking at our PGR research and we have grass at greens and fairway height. And regardless of the PGRs, we just noticed that the grass at greens height mowed shorter is growing at a much greater rate, about 30 to 40% faster 
than the collar hike, fairway right. hike. Grass okay, so are. we're going to get to that particular yeah, thing, yeah, and yeah. that's what I'm building towards because it's this. I think it's important for folks that maybe haven't been paying attention to this. You know how this thinking came about, how it's been evolving, and now how it can be relatable to this collar issue that you've identified recently. That I think has broad implications just from the way we apply uh, PGRs uh, to uh, the mowing height we use or the GPS sprayers that we might be able to have. But let's let me go back and get you focused again on the one third rule. What were you finding when you took off 25 percent versus 30 percent versus 50 percent of the tissue from that tall fescue lawn? So when we were mowing at the 25% or a weekly, which is kind of in between the 25% or in the, the, the one-third rule, uh, they all produce the same amount of clipping yield. It didn't matter if we we're mowing at two inches or three inches. And we go out and we actually measure each plot every day. We record the height of the grass, and that's when we determine when to mow. So we, when we did that, we, figured, we realized that the, uh, the weekly and the quarter rule, the 25% removal, we had the best quality, as we would probably all uh, anticipate. Uh, in terms of minimizing mowing without getting an increase in, in that surge from that clipping yield from a scalping, the one-third reel actually seemed to be one of the, the best treatments. And so it's one of those things that are in the, the turf textbooks that actually, you know, when we te- you know, generated the data, it seemed to work. Uh, when we mowed uh, more frequently, we, we had better quality, but again, we're, we're putting a lot of resources into mowing and, you know, it's a lot of fuel and labor right. and, and all those impacts. So. so what about the 50%? Because I think this is also interesting. Yeah, so we thought maybe the 50% rule was going to scalp the grass and it was going to grow slower. And as re- and actually what we found is it grew um, significantly faster, about 25% faster than all the other treatments. And again, didn't matter if it was two-inch scalp or a three-inch scalp. So we let it go to six inches and we'll scalp it down to three inches. Uh, the grass looked bad, but we actually, at the end of the year, collected more clippings from that treatment and we've done this now for four years, and we see the same results. So th- I think this is interesting, Bill, because to me, this is a little bit of an interesting intersection. It's the intersection of frequency, like you just said a minute ago, and we'll, we're going to venture into this now, that putting greens that are mowed almost every day or just about every day in your work um, grow faster, right? They're yep. also uh, mowed lower on a daily basis. So I've sort of looked at this, well, the more frequently you mow, even if you're just removing a little bit, um, you're certainly stimulating growth. Um, And if you violate the one-third rule, it appears, um, the plant surges. Now, follow me here and tell me if I'm crazy. But even mowing every day, if we're not managing nitrogen right and we don't have our growth regulators in place, even a putting green, if you a day's growth could be enough to then violate the one third rule and cause uh, additional growth, uh, am I crazy? Maybe a day's growth, maybe a green's height, would maybe just a little too tight. I'm, I'm not thinking that's that, but I think just the fact that we're mowing it so short is actually putting a similar level of stress on that plant that would replicate, you know, a scalping event because it's just. The leaf area is so so low and so minimized, and it's below where that plant kind of wants to be. You know that it's putting a lot of energy and resources into that growth rate. And again, like you said, if we're mowing 
more and more frequently, then we're seeing this increase in growth rate, with it, which increases resources and changes how carbon is being moved around in the plant and right. all those types of things. So, so essentially, well, okay, so then that's what I was getting at because it appears that's what I needed to reconcile. So what you're saying is because we're cutting it so close that that sort of constant stressed activity uh, makes it respond as if it was being scalped. Yeah. And okay. I think we see this other grasses too. Like, for example, we have some tall fescue where we mow at a half of an inch at a fairway. It looks amazing. I mean, probably can't recover from divots, but it looks great. But that grass is growing faster than the tall fescue in those other studies where we're mowing in two and three inches because it's at a low mowing height that's so low that, that for tall fescue, it's like, I don't want to be at three or half of an inch. I want to be higher. So it's putting more energy into into uh, growing, and so we're measuring that increase in clipping yield. And and but you're also though that half inch tall fescue is also probably being mowed four times a week versus the two inch cut being mowed once a week. Yep. Yep. So frequency and height are are going to get in there, but I think we're all in agreement that growth now seems to be more stimulated based on the way we mow, or certainly mowing is affecting it. Obviously, grass type affects it. So, Bill, as we take a break here in a minute, let me ask you this. As we move into collar decline stuff, Mm -hmm. should we be mowing our collars lower? Yes. Without question. I mean, I wouldn't say without question, but if your collar is declining, um, that seems like something that people are having really good success with is dropping mowing heights a tenth of an inch or so to stimulate a little bit more growth. But there's other things that you can do too, um, aside from dropping your mowing heights. But that's one thing that can definitely help uh, help out with the collar issues. If you've just joined us here, frankly speaking, I'm Frank Rossi on the TurfNet Radio Network, and I'm being joined by Professor Bill Kreiser at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. We'll be right back after this message. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi here on the TurfNet Radio Network. My guest today, Professor Bill Kreiser, University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Good old Wisconsin boy, learned under the late Wayne Cusso, an early mentor to myself, and, of course, Doug Soldat pals that uh, we've all been pals for a while. Uh, with that little bit of Wisconsin lineage I got hooked to in my four years out there, Bill. And we won't talk about the bad back issues <laughs> that yeah. have arisen from all those clippings you've taken in your career. That I beca- tell Doug it's going to be a workman's comp claim coming. So. <laughs> That's great. I'm so glad to hear it because I think what I had to laugh out loud when uh, not about your uh, back problems, but about how you tied it up to taking clippings for so long. And Bill, you were taking those clippings because you were doing 
doing work, some foundational work that built on some work that Bruce Branham had done in Illinois, uh, where you brought this growing degree day model uh, to the turf grass industry, giving us an understanding of the importance of the frequency of applications or the intervals of applications. And you've recently certainly expanded it by studying other grasses, the, how the rate then affects the depth of regulation and the frequency is going to affect the length of regulation. So you've got depth and length of regulation. So I hope I didn't screw that up. What would you add to the general concepts that you learned about uh, the use of plant growth regulators to manage growth as that brake pedal in your uh, analogy from the beginning? Yeah, so uh, the PGRs are, we're learning a lot. We've learned a lot in the last 10 years, and especially in the last couple of years, we're starting to finally link and understand things better. And what we're really understanding is uh, the application rate impacts how much suppression you get it doesn't really have that much of an impact on how long the PGRs last. So that's a really important thing to segregate in your mind that I'm going at a lower rate or higher rate of any PGR. It doesn't mean that I'm going to get an extra week or two weeks or of control out of it. You might just get a day or two, uh, shorter or longer, depending if you increase or reduce the rate. So that's great because it gives us freedom to know, okay, I'm just going to stay on my, my, on my growing degree day base intervals. I'm going to use weather data to predict when to reapply but now I can manipulate my rate to achieve the clipping yields I need. So if your car is going out, going down a hill and it's racing down the hill because you, you know you can hit that brake a little bit harder to slow yourself down. If that soil is releasing a lot of nitrogen fertilizer in the middle of the summer because it's hot and it's wet, and you have that brake pedal in your PGR that you can start pushing it at a higher rate to shut down that growth. And so that's a, that's a, one of the most important things that we've kind of been starting to understand the last couple of years. But that's going to be very uh, specific to the particular growing conditions and current fertility regimes that guys will be using. So I imagine this is why you've really been emphasizing, and I know Mike has been talking about this and Doug's been talking about this, wrote about it recently in the uh, grass recent issue of Grassroots uh, from the Wisconsin superintendents, um, where you guys are all saying, listen, you got to measure how much it grows. You got to take clipping volume. I'm assuming this is how you're going to develop an application rate by collecting clipping volume. Yeah, exactly. So if, again, if you don't have that, that data written down, if you're doing nothing more than saying how much grass is in the buckets today, then you really can't, you don't have the guidance to really figure out what rates you need to be working with. And so uh, just logging that clipping volume, it's not very much work. Think about the amount of time that is spent, you know, pulling weeds in beds or weed whipping around trees. It's a couple minutes to record how much clippings were mowed off your greens today uh, that, so that you can have that data to then make your guidance on on one, your fertilizer application and on your PGR application. I mean, why would you want to be going down the highway riding the brakes and the gas pedal at the same time? So why are you putting down the same primo rate or PGR rate and the same end rate every week? Shouldn't you be trying to manipulate those two things together to hit the clipping yield that you're trying to to achieve? Now, do you recommend, do I need all 18 greens? Can I pick a few greens? Should I put a bucket on the end of every green where I uniformly dump the same basket from generally the same cut into? Uh, what do you believe is a minimum entry here to start collecting data? Yeah, the minimum entry is just one green. I mean, if you have one green that you think is representative um, 
of most of your greens, use that. And you don't even have to, you don't even, if you're doing that, you don't even have to worry about the square footage. You just know that on this green, I get this many liters or quarts or gallons or whatever volume unit you want. And you figure out, okay, this is the level that I need. It's appropriate for my course. It's like a soil moisture meter. Everybody has different numbers for where their will points are. Every sure. golf course is going to have slightly different numbers for what their clipping yield needs to be. So you just have to kind of figure out which clipping yield is giving you the performance you want and then just kind of re record that and then try to manipulate your PGRs and your end rates and your water to uh, try to dial that in. Okay, so that's uh, rate and, and, and depth, uh, um, you know, the brake pedal. But then there is the frequency and length issue, and that – has gotten, uh, you know, it started out, well, 200 growing degree days, and then, you you know, you heard saw Trigva and the Scandinavians play around with, I would think maybe they were one of the first ones I saw to play around with it regionally, maybe on light levels or something, but now you're doing PGR work uh, regionally, you're doing it on different grasses with, of course, different products, and while I think we uh, might have expected products to have a little bit of differences you you found and maybe we affect expected some differences among the grasses uh you found a wide range of differences both among the products and the grasses yeah definitely and the grasses are a big deal there's a lot of differences between grasses and not even just between species um there's, there's differences within cultivars and there's differences within mowing heights and so when we look at talking about growing degree day models, there's a, a bit of a conservative nature built into them because there are these types of differences. Um, and, and so the mowing height thing, people think, why is that important? Well, if we're mowing a green shorter, we, are, it's, we, we just talked about how it's growing faster. So the two mechanisms of removing that PGR from the, the surface are one, through mowing, and two, through breakdown in the plant when it's hot. So you have to have both of those things there. So we use the we have different models for say greens and you would for fairways because they're growing at different rates. And so the removal from less frequent mowing and slower growth rate is going to mean that those products last a lot longer. So what we find is, uh, say a bent grass fairway, um, PGRs might last three, four hundred growing degree days. On a green, maybe 200, 250, 280 growing degree days. Hmm. Then we're applying for the green. So that's just going to lead to this kind of stacking thing where we're applying too frequently on those fairways and we start to see some 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 negative consequences. Okay, that. and that's that's the perfect transition. Thank you for taking me there. I was going to say there's a certain number of uh, golf courses that for a variety of reasons, maybe labor, maybe sustainability, uh, maybe they find it's worked for them, that they'll mow one day, roll the next, mow one day, roll the next. Um, that obviously is going to have a different growth habit, uh, even though it might be at the same mowing height, because you're skipping in there, uh, that could also, something subtly like that might slow down the growth rate. And if you don't alter your PGR rate and frequency, you could be stacking, or I think the other wood would be over-regulating, wouldn't it? Yeah. So what I've been using a lot, I've been over-regulating uh, the turf and it, it really occurs when you're applying more frequently than that plant can break it down to the product. So even though it's an application interval, you're applying, uh, you know, too soon, what's happening is you're essentially adding more PGR before the past application is completely gone. And so you're getting the current application plus any pre prior applications. And so 
the low rates can intensify and turn into pretty big and high rates. I think we see this on the uh, warm season greens all the time based on the research that we've been doing okay. on the ultra dwarfs. Right. Okay. And so that's what I, so, so th- that this is the surprising thing. I, I think that's, what's been most exciting to me where, um, uh, and I'll use two examples that just jumped right out at me. The one was, and I wasn't sure if it was Bill, uh, Doug, or you that did the work where you put cutlass on a bluegrass athletic field and it didn't regulate it at all was a big wow to me. And the other big wow was a new, which is a, a newer plant growth regulator, Prohexendione calcium, I think. Yep. It has a longer interval on cool season grasses than Primo, but apparently a shorter interval on warm season grasses. Are those, did I get those wows right? Yeah, I think the cutlass one to me is still a little bit of a mystery. Doug's been looking at it. I've been looking at it too on bluegrass uh, athletic fields and fairways. And sometimes we even see a growth enhancement after you apply it. It's just a really strange <laughs> response. And we're trying to understand it a little bit better. We mix it with in like a product like a Legacy or a Musketeer, then it works just like all the other products. But um, Cutlass has been kind of an interesting one. Uh, and then uh, a new, we found, yeah, it lasts a little bit longer uh, on uh, bent grass putting greens. But then on Bermuda grass putting greens, it actually lasts about half as long as the Primo did. So again, it, it depends on how that plant is able to break down these products. And so I've, it seems like the Bermuda grass has something in its biochemistry to break down a new a little bit quicker than the uh, the primo. The difference between those two species, though, is that warm season, cool season. The warm season grass species uses a base temperature of 10 degrees Celsius, whereas the cool season uses a base temperature of zero degrees Celsius. And so, if we're talking about these intervals right now, we need the managers out there to know that if you're Bermuda grass and I say 200 for primo, that's very different than 200 for a, a cool season grass with a base of zero degrees Celsius because of that base 10. Okay, so. Uh, w- Okay, so then you don't accumulate them as quickly at a base 10, obviously, as you, then you do at a zero. Yeah, so if your temperatures are only in, like, the upper 60s for highs uh, in the south, you know, you might be getting a month out of a 200 growing degree day application uh, on a warm season green. Uh, if it's a cool season green, that's that same weather, you're probably going to get about 10 days to two weeks of suppression out of it. So very big differences. As the temperatures get warmer and warmer, then those, those differences become smaller and smaller, but... That's right. So, so let me, I want to follow up because if there are, um, I, I'm really fascinated by uh, the, the warm season grass uh, PGR use. And you and I have talked about this over, over uh, adult beverages in the past. But the, the, when I see warm season grass managers managing Primo, it's a, a pretty regular diet of Primo. It looks very much like a, a cool season diet of Primo where, where it's regular applications and no one really had degree day stuff. Of course, in the last several years, you've been looking at this and I think this is a, the wow that I missed. You would argue that the way warm season turf grass managers have been marange, managing these ultra dwarf greens, they've been, would you say, significantly over-regulating these surfaces? Definitely. And it's, you know, I've been noticing it, but then I'm also talking to Scott McElroy, who was making applications on tight intervals in Auburn, and he was getting 95% growth suppression. They were doing all this modeling work at Tennessee and NC State, Mississippi State, and uh, we're finding these intervals should be in like the two to three week interval uh, time range. And we're thinking about applications going out every week or every four days. And then 
we'll constantly hear, well, we're well, using low rates. You're testing four ounce rate, Bill, and we're using a one ounce rate. Well, it goes back to rate doesn't really impact how long the products last. So if you should be applying that one ounce every two to three weeks and you're playing every four days, it goes one ounce and then you add another ounce, another ounce. Next thing you know, you have a four, five, six, seven ounce application right in there. And we're getting no clipping yield from those those greens. So, so okay, the, no clipping yield. Are the guys complaining that the greens are thinning? Or do you think this could be behind why some ultra dwarfs maybe are more susceptible to certain diseases? I mean, it's not like all the ultra dwarfs were dying. Were no, guys I, complaining about them being overregulated? I don't think so. I think they just have gotten onto an expectation that if they see any growth, that it's a rebound. And actually, in all of our research, we never see rebounds. We've done it now at five different sites on different Bermuda grasses, and it never rebounds. It okay. always goes back to the clipping yield it would have been if you never put the PGR down. So I think what they do is they see some kind of growth rate, and then they think it's rebounding. No, it's just kind of returning to what it naturally would have been growing like. And so, again, that's where having targets for what is the clipping volume you need is really important so that you can kind of figure that out. And this is the fundamental question. In my mind, the first thing I think is, well, actually, if putting greens didn't grow very much, that would be good, except people walk on them. So we actually need growth almost exclusively on a golf course to put up with traffic. So traffic becomes almost the only, unless you need some recuperative ability from disease. I mean, obviously there's other reasons, but the steady impact that traffic provides, is that what you're focusing your growth rate on to a certain extent? Yeah. I mean, it's right now we're, we have a way now to measure how fast we're growing, but we don't really have a speed limit. We don't know what, we don't have a goal. And so we need to figure out what types of clipping yield do we need to maintain the, the acceptable type of performance. And that's a big thing that I'm, I'm studying this coming summer. If you just joined me, it's Bill Kreiser, the professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, pioneered some of this PGR work that we're wandering through right now in this deep dive here on Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here in the hills of central New York. I'm myself an associate professor at Cornell University, but today I'm a member of the TurfNet Radio Network, and this is the Frankly Speaking Project. Our guest for the last 30 minutes has been Professor Bill Kreiser at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and it has been an enormously deep dive into growth and plant growth regulators. And Bill, when we wrapped up, we were chatting about Bermuda grass uh, greens and PGR use, and I, you know, was commenting, boy, they don't seem to be declining, but there is a place where it looks like you've identified an issue that has been plaguing many golf superintendents, particularly in northern climates, and, and that is the decline of the collars that's 
gotten so bad they put, you know, fence lattices on the collars to to not turn the mowers on them because they have what appears to be mechanical damage that Peter Noden identified 25 years ago. No one really sort of tried to explain it back then. Uh, Now it just looks like lack of traffic tolerance. Take us through your thinking on how you've gotten a pretty good solution to maybe dealing with this issue of collar decline. Yeah, so what we started doing last year, and uh, we're doing this now, a similar thing with the warm season uh, greens where we're applying on these tight intervals to see what happened. And so sticking to the, the cool season grasses, cool season green collar complex areas, we just went out and used Primo and trim it at low rates that would give us, you know, pretty standard levels of growth suppression for a green on greens intervals would give really nice quality of that green. We put it onto um, grass, bent grass at fairway height, 400 um, mowing height. And uh, we just applied and over the first couple of weeks, it looked fine. And then after six weeks, the, uh, the trim it really started looking bad. And after about seven or eight weeks, even the Primo started really those treatments really had a, a pretty bad look to them from the uh, that accumulative effect of applying PGRs faster than they were breaking down and getting kind of an intensification of the amount in the plant. So uh, just by using PGRs, we were able to replicate a lot of the collar decline that I see when I do site visits uh, around the, the Great Plains, around Nebraska, and around, as I've seen, around the country. Um, and so we, we think about, you know, what pathogen is it and what the stress is. And I'm able to do this on a, a research plot with essentially no traffic, great soils, great irrigation. Everything is ideal, and I can still make the grass look absolutely terrible. Hmm. Uh, and so it really showed the PGRs can have a big impact on this because the grass is, again, just growing too slow. And so we're having, starting to see some of these problems start to uh, arise. So the solution is to not put the PGRs uh, on the collars at the green intervals. Uh, not so easy to do. Yeah. So there's a couple different things you can do here. So one, we can think about it like a, a fungicide. We can be preventative or we can be curative. To be preventative, there's things we can do. Like we said before, we can maybe more, lower mowing heights. That increases the clipping yield, which increases the removal of the PGR. So it's going to last a little bit shorter. We can try to do fertilizer applications only to the collars, maybe with a drop spreader or a spray hawk. And that's going to kind of incle- increase the, the, the clipping yield globally. So we'll get less of a suppression from the PGR. So those are kind of two curative type of uh, or preventative approaches. And then the other one is keeping the, uh, the PGR off the collars. And you might think, well, how do I do that? Well, if, a lot of times people are applying fungicides and fertilizers every two weeks. Um, and their PGR apps might have to be weekly. So if you're going to be in a schedule like that anyways, you spray the whole green collar complex on your two-week app, and in that interval where you have to just apply the PGR, you go spray and you turn the nozzles off uh, when you get into the cleanup pass. So you don't even get any on the collar. So that's another way that you can minimize it. Or we have variable rate um, GPS sprayers, and we're trying to integrate that technology in too, where the nozzles shut off, or even better, can the nozzles go to lower PGR rates? Yeah, so when they go on the collar, yeah. we can actually cut the rate, and yeah. um, depending on the, the uh, growing degree days that have accumulated, to really dial that down. Well, so. that's the holy grail, Bill. That's 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 where we start to get, you know, almost smart sprayers that that we can design 
uh, with, you know, knowing our growth. And, you know, you touched on something that I want to make sure we talk about as well. And and we didn't really get into it in growth. And it made me think of it when you were suggesting, you know, fertilizing the uh, collars more. Um, and, and that is the role that uh, end mineralization is playing in this, that, that this is this unknown that we're not really sure how to completely control. And that's, I think, what the future holds for this in some ways, right? I know you're doing some yeah. growth potential work, and I know you're doing some heat chamber and how things grow. Um, mm-hmm. So can you talk for a minute about, you know, when you say to add fertilizer, you know, that's sort of to give us an immediate response, but there's always this sort of latent uh, or incalcitrant N that, that yeah. sort of releases uh, in a ways we haven't figured out. It's almost like like the Prius that, that, that used to automatically accelerate and run into people. It's like mineralization is where the, the gas pedal gets stuck, yes? Yeah, it's, it's exactly, exactly like that. And that's where having that PGR act as like your brake pedal is going to be helpful. And so what we usually hear, uh, and one of the reasons we did all the initial growing degree day work was in the middle of the summer, the PGRs aren't working. And so we determined one is probably because the, uh, they're being broken down faster when it's hot. But two, the grass is just growing a lot faster in the summertime because the soils are warm, they're wet. And so that's ideal situation for mineralization. I mean, when do greens get puffy? They get puffy in July. Yeah. Why? Because they're growing like crazy because of that mineral nitrogen that's becoming released. But again, some of those bimodal textbook type curves that show that cool season grasses don't grow in the summertime. I think that's kind of, you got people to think, you know, my greens are getting puffy for other reasons and it's not because of that mineralization effect. So it's really, really important. And uh, a lot of times when I hear PGRs aren't working, just remind them it probably would have been even worse if you didn't have the PGR there because of that mineralization, that breakdown of organic nitrogen, turning it into mineral nitrogen fertilizer the plant can use. As we learn about mineralization, you know the MLSN and the widespread interest in the use of growth potential, and you and I have talked about sort of differences and where how we could enhance that. Is that a good place for people to at least start with this, the, the potential for the grass uh, to grow and then calibrate it as we get more information about it, particularly as you collect clippings? Yeah, I think so. The thing we're going to have to, we're going to realize is depending on the the temperature, we're going to see a different response out of that nitrogen fertilizer. So if it's really cold outside or it's really hot, if you put down an N rate, you're not going to see the same growth response that you would when then if you're at an ideal temperature. So for example, ryegrass likes it just below like mid mid 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you put down a half of a pound of N for that, you're going to see a bigger growth flush than you would if it's, say, 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So it kind of goes back to that car analogy where now the temperature is kind of like the gear selector. If you're if it's really hot, it doesn't matter how much N you put in, you're probably never going to get a big response out of that uh, clipping yield because the grasses just can't uh, use that fertilizer and grow at a rate fast enough. And so if you're trying to then maintain consistency with your clipping yields, it kind of gives you an indication of, of uh, you know, how responsive that accelerator pedal is going to be. If it's ideal conditions, you maybe can use less fertilizer to get the same kind of clipping yield increase. And if it's if it's lower if it's, or it's hotter, 
then you may not be able to get the clipping yield goals that you have because it's just not ideal for that grass to be growing. So I think there's a lot of information being generated on this, and I think it can be helpful in trying to then manage clipping yields more effectively. And I think that really begins with data, right? I mean, they've, they've got to be able to get some data off these surfaces to see how the uh, plants are growing. And Bill, I have to say, you certainly have been wildly successful with with something that I remember brainstorming about in some ways years and years ago with the Greenkeeper app and how successful that's been uh, in being not just a sort of a, a data collection area, a data collection device, but how now superintendents can use it for a variety of different aspects of this growth issue, their fungicide use, um, the risk of pesticides. Uh, talk for a minute. I'm going to let you promote it because I really think it's a, a, a substantial tool for people to begin to develop. Take a minute and and, want, and take us through uh, the Greenkeeper app, uh, where it was, uh, where it is, and where it's going. Yeah, so Greenkeeper app is just a website we've been developing. So despite the name app, it's uh, actually a, it's a web app. So you go to it greenkeeperapp.com, register for free. There's a free version that has majority of everything that you would need um, to to start using data to manage your your turf. And so when we first built this, it was mainly for the plant growth regulators and automatically calculating growing degree days and telling you how much clipping yield suppression um, you're getting. And again, that's always a relative clipping yield. It doesn't tell you the absolute, the actual amount in your bucket. It just tells you what it would have been relative if you didn't mm-hmm. uh, put a PGR down. Um, and so there's about, I think there's like 280 now different models has looked at it in Greenkeeper. So it knows if the, your grass species and your and your PGR and the rate, it tells you then what your interval should be. And so that, that was kind of how it got started. And we've grown to uh, you know, 5,000 different uh, user emails in our database, and um, 3,800 golf courses have signed up for it. So it's been pretty uh, remarkable. So we've been able to use that interest to uh, to now continue to grow. And so we track fertilizer. Uh, we're integrated now with a soil testing lab, so we can um, look and use you know MLSN type concepts in Greenkeeper. And uh, and now we just launched this this Greenkeeper uh, Premium. And that also has this performance tracker. So we can use that to keep track of all the data being generated at your course, uh, clipping yield, green speed, um, uh, color, uh, soil moisture. And now we can start looking at, you know, how are those things related? Um, one of the things that Doug Soldat and I are working on right now is if you're entering your clipping yields in and we know what your soil test levels are and what your, uh, your growth rate is. Now we can even start optimizing what your PGR rates are, what your end rates are, yeah. and even tell you how much nutrient you're removing, uh, through your mow- your mowing. So if you're taking off two pounds of N a year, you know, how much N are you putting back? Right. It gives you some, some good guidance there to kind of figure some of those, uh, questions out, uh, and it's all automated. So there's not a lot of, you know, work on, on your side to have to do it except for enter in the, the data. That's, that's right. And, 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 and I think, I, I think as we wrap up, Bill, the, I think a lot of people, uh, are scared about this, right. They hear about big data. You know, I don't need data. I'm a good manager. And I think I I've said publicly that, you know, m- using data as part of your decision-making, is not going to make a bad manager uh, better or good. It, it'll yeah. make a good manager better. And I, and I think the other thing is the reason I think people are scared of big data is that there aren't places to integrate 
all these things. There's lots of different ways to collect data. There's lots of different data that can be collected. And having a place where you can look at it in a one-stop shopping approach allows you to develop correlations from the most important piece of data you take many times, and that's from your eyes, yeah. right? A lot of this has to be calibrated to, to your eyes. But I will tell you, I think, and you might agree, sometimes your eyes deceive you. So that's why having that data as a backup uh, as part of your decision-making won't replace your role as a good manager, but it, but it's likely to enhance it. Yeah, and it definitely prevents you from just living on the day-to-day in the moment. You can actually start looking back over what's been going on because a lot of times we see something and then we want to respond, right? So if we if we have a longer-term history, we can understand what was going on in this time that the grass was growing really fast or really slow or my green speeds weren't where I wanted them to be. And so we can start looking at that and reviewing it, especially in the winter, to then start planning for the next year. And so keeping those good records and automating it really helps us become more precise in our management and our inputs. Where do you see this going? Well, uh, we just continue to see it growing. Um I don't know. We're we're having a, a great time doing it. Um, we are uh, we're just going to continue to add new features and and get support that we're we're getting uh, is really allowing us to do that. And so hiring developers and continuing to make this really be the essential decision support tool is really what my goal is. And it's just fun because we can use our science and we can That's integrate right. it all right. into a tool that people can easily use so that they're making the best decisions uh, for their playability, for their pocketbook, for the environment. Uh, all in this this one tool. Assistant Professor Bill Kreiser, I got to believe soon to be Associate Professor Bill Kreiser at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, thank you for joining me, Bill. Um, I hope you have some safe flying, and I'll look forward to seeing you uh, uh, during the season or back during the speaking season. Uh, my best to Katie and the Hop Project there at Nebraska. Thanks. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you, Frank. All right, Bill. Bill Kreiser, University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Frank Rossi. I'll be right back with a few final thoughts. An enlightening conversation with Professor Bill Kreiser about how grass grows, something so fundamental to our work in turf that had been left unexplored. Sometimes asking simple questions and challenging convention can lead to great insights. I've experienced this during our years of research at the Bethpage State Park attempting to manage a golf course without pesticides. My colleague, Dr. Jennifer Grant at the New York State IPM program asked, can you manage a golf course without pesticides? I promptly said no. She said, how do you know? Simple questions can lead to great insight, especially for something that seems so common it might go unnoticed. Something we all need to be mindful of and that is easily missed is your continued support of the land-grant mission at your state universities, especially for graduate student education. Bill Kreiser is able to help us now because of the support he received from sponsors in Wisconsin and here at Cornell University. I'm proud to be part of this mission, the research and development arm of the turfgrass industry. Thank you for joining me. I'm Frank Rossi, and this is the Frankly Speaking Project.